I would like to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And Luke writes this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I was in India a few years ago uh, with Stuart Reed, and uh, I was supporting him as he was preaching in various places out there. And uh, I was preaching at a village. It was evening time, and it was dark. But where I was standing, it was lit, and I could see the congregation sitting on the ground in front of me listening. But I noticed that as I was speaking, I could hear the murmur of voices. I don't think it was angels. And uh, it seemed to go on throughout the time I was speaking. I looked at the congregation. It wasn't the congregation. So it was someone else who was murmuring away during the whole time that I was speaking. When I'd finished, I turned to the Indian pastor and I said to him, you know, I noticed I could hear people speaking as I was uh, preaching. What was that all about? And he said, well, on this type of occasion, it's a big event coming to the village. And so the villagers are very interested in what's going on. So even if they don't feel a part of it, they will come and they will sort of stand around the edge in the shadow and they will listen to what's going on and they will comment on what's going on. It's a bit of a social occasion for them. Much like here in the episode that I've just read out, if, I could see the, if we could see the first slide, just to give you an idea of what it might have been like, people could come to the event 
So you'd see them reclining at the table, and people who weren't invited could come to this meal. They wouldn't be part of it, but they would stand around on the edges in the shadows, and they would listen to what was going on, and they'd be interested in who was there and that kind of thing. And they would also, perhaps, if they were very fortunate, get some scraps, some of the leftovers. So here we have, in this situation, an unusual celebrity come to this meal. He's been invited to this meal, and uh, he seems to be quite radical in what he says and does. People are asking various things about him. Is he a prophet? Is he a drunkard and a glutton, as he was accused of before? Is he possessed by the devil? He's certainly nothing to look at, as we heard last week. Is he a healer? Is he simply a rabble-rouser? Has he come to overthrow the Romans? Who is he? Does he offer any real hope? Does he offer any hope for me? Who is this who even says that he forgives sins? I wonder if you've, thank you, that's fine. I wonder if you've ever entered a social situation where you don't feel comfortable. Maybe you have the wrong clothes. You arrive in jeans to find that everybody else is dressed formally. I'm personally not one for parties where there's loud music going on. I don't like dancing in public. I might, because, well, for a start, I can't do it. And so if I go to things like, I sometimes feel a bit awkward on these social occasions. I tend to sort of sit on the edge and I'll only go on the dance floor if my wife drags me there or if I feel obligated to dance with her. And then when I get there, I kind of, that's my method of dancing. So I feel a bit awkward. And uh, anyway, it was a big step for this woman. Jesus was perceived by many as a rabbi, a religious teacher. So it was outrageous. Let's get this in our heads. It was totally outrageous for her to touch him at all, let alone in such a a personal way, especially with her tawdry reputation. The woman lets her hair down. That was unheard of to do that in public. It was a, and again, it was a totally outrageous thing to do. Women just did not do that in those days. They would do it in the privacy of their own home, but they would not let their hair down in public as this woman does. So, this is doubly outrageous. Yes, she could be on the periphery, perhaps, in the, in the shadows. But to come in and to touch this rabbi and to let her hair down would have been completely outrageous in those days. She touches Jesus, but it's not in an erotic way. It's deeply felt, but it's not sexual. Again, I looked up some images of what people thought it might look like. Here's the one that I thought, for me, spoke the most. There you can see, I think you can see it. Yeah, the woman, as she bends down and kisses Jesus. It's quite an intimate thing to be doing. Not erotic, not sexual, but here she is touching his feet, grasping his feet, and weeping as she did so. Jesus' feet, by the way, would have been dirty. So you can imagine as her tears got onto his feet that the dirt would have stained his feet, stained her face. She gets her hair down and she dries his feet with her hair. She sobs there. And then she she breaks the jar of perfume. It's symbolic as well. Once she's broken this jar of perfume, there's no going back. It's a precious thing that she's doing here. And she had a terrible reputation in the community. Simon is thinking, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. 
You know, tradition has it that she was a woman who slept around. Perhaps she did it for money. Perhaps not. But she had a bad reputation. She's obviously heard Jesus' message of, of God's love. Thanks, you can take that off. And forgiveness towards wayward people. Maybe she heard it through someone else, or maybe she'd already seen Jesus and heard his message before she comes here. However she heard, she comes with profound humility, gratitude, and love. It makes me ask this question. I wonder how you have come here today. Is it simply a kind of routine, a religious routine, something that we do on a Sunday? Yes, there's nothing wrong with routine. We are people of routine. God is a person of routine as well. He causes the sunrise at certain times, the moon to come up at certain times. So he's a God of routine too. But she comes with profound love, profound humility, profound gratitude. And I loved Sally's prophetic word that she gave this morning, encouraging us to go further, to perhaps go deeper in our worship and our love for the Lord. This morning, I want to look briefly at three aspects of this incident, and they are this, tragedy, truth, and transformation. Tragedy, truth, and transformation. The first one I want to look at is tragedy. You see, the Pharisee who's invited Jesus to the table thinks if this man were a prophet, even that thought is tragic. You see, Simon the Pharisee, he knew all about religion. He knew all about liturgy, theology, ethics, temple worship. He knew all about the law. But what he didn't know was he did not know the Lord. That is the tragedy. Many people today know about Jesus. If I'd had a bit more time, I would have loved to, and I just haven't had the time, because it didn't, didn't occur to me till too late, to just pop into Tesco and have a chat with some of the people there and ask them about Jesus. And uh, I wish I'd had that. I might do that in the future. But I suspect that if you went into the town and you asked people about Jesus, most people would have heard of him. They may well have known about Bethlehem, the baby in the manger, the star that guided them, the three wise men, the gifts that were given. They may well know those things. They may well know, actually, that Jesus was quite well-renowned as a religious teacher. They may well know that Jesus was renowned as well as a healer and that he died on the cross. They may know as well there's something to do with Jesus and Easter. I'm not quite sure what that's all about. Something to do with a tomb. Could be a myth. We're not sure. But I'm sure that many people will know about Jesus. But they don't know him personally. That is the tragedy. Let me show you another slide here. I know something about this lady, Theresa May, our new prime minister. I know she went to Oxford University. I know she's married. I know she doesn't have any children. I know that she suffers from diabetes. I know that she likes wearing funky shoes. I know that uh, she used to be the Home Secretary, but I don't know her. I don't know her. I know about her. We can know about Jesus without knowing him. The sinful woman in this episode knew more. She knew Jesus more than the religious Pharisee. The woman's knowledge of Jesus was experiential. She had experienced something of his love. It's not enough to know about him. 
We have to experience them. I wonder where you are today. You might know a lot about Jesus. You might be able to tell me the parables. You might be able to tell me about the healings. You might be able to quote things that he has said. You may know lots of things about him. You may have read the New Testament or bits of it and know a lot about him. But the question is this, do you know him? Do you know him? Because there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing that person. The sinful woman, as she comes, she knows Jesus. The Pharisee who has all the religious education, all the religious knowledge, and knows all about God, doesn't know him at all. And that is the tragedy. And that is the tragedy today for people who don't know, have had, not had experience of Jesus Well, it's not enough to know about him. We have to experience him. How? How do we then experience him? Well, we experience him by acknowledging who he really is and responding to what he says. That's exactly what happened to me. When the light slowly dawned on me as a 20-year-old as to who Jesus really is, and then I began to respond to that truth, then things began to happen in my life. And it's obviously happened here in the life of this woman. I wonder... Changing tack slightly, if you could invite someone famous, a non-biblical person from history for dinner whom you respected, who might you invite? Just have a think for a moment. Who might you invite? Well, I will give you some suggestions just to help you along your way, right? You might like to invite this person here. This is... Mumble, mumble. Yeah, it's Leonardo da Vinci. You're correct. So if you invited him for dinner, you might say, well, you had some amazing ideas about machines that might fly in the future. If only you knew what had happened since then. But what I'm really interested in is the Mona Lisa. You know, who was she? And what was that about her smile that you painted that has fascinated everybody down through the ages? Well, I appreciate that Leonardo da Vinci might be a bit highbrow for some of you. So let's look at the next Leonardo. This is... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor. Again, if you invited him for dinner, you might say to Leonardo, you might say, wow, um, well done on getting that Oscar the other year, last year. You did really well in that. But what I'm really interested in is in Titanic, when you were in the water, it looked ever so cold. Was it really? And how did you get over it? How many times did you have to film that scene? And how difficult was it? Or on the other hand, you might like to look at someone historical, and the next one is this lady on the back of the five-pound note. You might like to invite her for dinner. This is Elizabeth Fry. And Elizabeth Fry is on the back of the five-pound note because she was a great prison reformer in Victorian times. She was very interested in that. So you might invite her for dinner. And you might say to her, Elizabeth, I'm absolutely fascinated. Well done for all that prison reform work you did. But what I'm really interested in is this. You had 11 kids. How on earth did you? I mean, we find it difficult to cope with two let alone 11, to have 11 kids and to do all that prison reform. How on earth did you manage it? Or more recently, another Elizabeth. You might uh, like to invite this Elizabeth for dinner. And you might say to her, well, we are so proud of you. You, You're the longest reigning monarch in our history, and you've represented this nation ever so well. But what I'm really interested in is this. You've had 13 prime ministers who visited you and they've had to have your approval to become prime minister. Tell me, who was the one you got on well with the best, and why? So, 
The point is that if you invite someone special for dinner with an apparent high status, you would make an effort, surely, to make sure they were welcomed appropriately into your home, wouldn't you? Even if it wasn't someone of a high status, even if it was a friend of yours, you would at least ask them if they'd like a cup of tea, wouldn't you? Yeah? I'm not so sure. Maybe you wouldn't. Well, please, if I knock on your door, can you say to me, would you like a coffee, Ron? All right? Anyway... Simon, the Pharisee, he's done none of the traditional welcoming of a guest into a home. No kiss, no oil for the head, no water to wash the feet. So what's he doing here? He's actually snubbing Jesus. He's trying to put Jesus in his place. He's not giving him any of the common courtesies of the day that you should have given to a guest. The tragedy is that Simon doesn't know who he's got in his home. Who has he got in his home? Who is the one who's reclining at the table? It's the one who sits above the circle of the earth and whose inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's the bright and morning star. It's the fairest of 10,000. It's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is the one who's reclining at the table and Simon doesn't even recognize it. What a tragedy is that? Do we recognize today as we gather together that the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father is in our midst? Because Jesus said this, where two or three, where two or three are gathered together in my name, then there I am in the midst. Are we missing that? Because of routine? Are we missing that because we don't really know who he is? Are we missing that because our faith has grown a bit weak? Jesus is the one at the table. The tragedy is that they don't recognize, Simon does not recognize who he is. People today don't recognize who Jesus is, and that's the tragedy of the world. But Jesus' desire, as Neil was saying earlier, is he's leaning towards us. I love that expression. But Jesus is leaning towards you and me this morning. Do you know, if I lean towards someone, do you know what? I can hear them better. When I was uh, training to be a teacher, I remember, and that's a long, long time ago now. It's, yeah, it's, it must be getting over 40 years ago. I was training to be a teacher, and I remember my very first teaching practice. I was terrified. And uh, I had to take this group of kids and uh, do some maths with them. Embarrassing. I won't go into them. But anyway... The head teacher was also in the room with the teacher just observing me as I was doing my thing. And I was talking to one of the girls. I think the children were maybe about 10 years old. So she was about that tall. In those days, I had a beard. So I was standing like this. The girl was standing there. And I was talking to her. And I can't remember. She was asking me a question. I was talking to her. Afterwards, the head teacher came up to me. And I'll never forget this. He said to me, what would have been helpful when you were talking to her is just to get down to her level and look her eye to eye. I've never forgotten that. Jesus has done that for you and me, hasn't he? As he leans towards towards us. Jesus leans towards us and he comes right down. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. 
He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And he got down to your and my level to look us in the eye. And he leans towards us so that he can hear us and we can hear him. Amen? So Jesus wants us to know him. The tragedy is this. People don't know who he is, but Jesus wants to be known. So let's look at the second aspect of this, which is truth. Jesus answered some Simon, and Jesus tells him this parable out the, about the money lender. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarii, by the way, was about a day's wages, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. See, when Jesus talks about a debt, he's referring to what we owe God. Well, what is it that we owe God? This is what we owe God. We owe God perfect obedience, and we owe God perfect worship. But what do we give him as humankind? Instead of perfect obedience and perfect love and perfect worship, we give him rebellion. That's what we give him. We give him disobedience. We go to other things, and we worship them. So we are now in massive debt to God for all he's done. We owe him everything. In case we didn't know that. We owe him the very breath that we breathe. So we owe him. The problem is this. We have a tendency to think that our debt isn't a 500 debt. We think that our debt, very often, it's only a 50. We're not so bad. My debt isn't 500. I know somebody who is 500. I could even point them out to you. They might even be sitting here. Of the, you know, well, not the person sitting next to you. They're not a 500, obviously. They're near a 50, aren't they? Your husband or wife, they're not a 500. Your children, they're, not, they're, they're only 50, aren't they? Come on. But I do know some 500s. And I wouldn't like to be like a 500. I'm so happy and pleased that I'm only a 50. Well, Jesus told a, a parable, didn't he, of uh, two men who went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, Jesus tells us, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm just a 50. Thank you, God. But the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast, and said, I'm sorry for everything that I've done. Jesus said, which of those two was justified before God? You know, we think we're a, sometimes we think we're a 50 because we compare ourselves with others, don't we? We think, I'm not as bad as dot, 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 fill in the blank. I'm not as bad as DDD. Therefore, I'm a 50. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think that includes you and me, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says there is a debt. Both the woman and the Pharisee's sin is like a debt. Something is owed. In this case, something is owed to God, the debt of sin. So in forgiving the debt, who's going to pay? In forgiving the debt, who's going to pay? Maybe you've got some kind of loan. Maybe you've got a mortgage. Maybe you will take a loan out in the future. I don't know. 
But if, say, you know, you have a mortgage, and I come to you, and I say to you, ah, oh, it's no need to worry. And you can't, you're, you're finding it difficult to, in fact, you can't pay it. You're out of work. There's no sign of it, and, you know, the debts are piling up. And I come to you and say, don't worry, it's fine. It's, don't worry about it. The debt is, will be settled. No problem there. What does that actually mean if I come up to you and say that? Well, it doesn't mean this. The debt will simply be swept under the carpet and ignored. Let's just, you know, when those envelopes arrive on the front doorstep, we just put them under the carpet from the building society, you know. You're behind with your payments. It doesn't mean that. Neither does it mean that the debt will just kind of disappear all by itself. No, it doesn't mean that. It means the debt has to be paid. Someone has to pay the debt. The wages of sin is death. So the penalty for sin is death. How can Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Now, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating that that when the paralytic came on the other occasion, and um, Jesus looked at the paralytic, and he said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone went, that's outrageous. How can you say such a thing? And then Jesus said to him, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. It's very interesting what Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk. Well, obviously, the harder thing is to say your sins are forgiven. It was never, and on this occasion when Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, let's make no mistake about it, that was no light thing for him to say. Why? Because he was the one who was going to pay the debt. And how was he going to pay the debt? Well, the the wages of sin is death. That's how he was going to pay the debt. So when Jesus said to anybody, your sins are forgiven, that was the most costly thing that he could say to anybody. Your sins are forgiven. Because he knew that in order for someone's sins to be forgiven, he was going to have to suffer the agony of the cross and separation from Father God which is unfathomable to us. We can't grasp what that means. So when we think about our sins are forgiven, let's remember it's cost Jesus everything. And the woman comes here, and she weeps at his feet and washes his feet with the tears and wipes. It's sheer adoration and gratitude and love. She realizes, I'm a 500. I'm a 500 plus. What about you and me? Do you think you're a 50? Maybe a topsy 75, yeah? You might even admit to being a 100 in your darker moments. But actually, the truth is this. I'm a 500. You're a 500. Because it's going to take Jesus to say to us, your sins are forgiven. It's going to take Jesus dying on the cross in order for your sins to be forgiven and my sins to be forgiven. So hello, we're all in the same boat. Amen? Amen. There's nobody less than 500 here. Sorry to disillusion you if you think you are. You're not. So that's the truth. And this truth leads to transformation. And here we see the transforming power of forgiveness. God offers forgiveness 
And it's received by faith. She receives that by faith. And we receive that by faith, knowing the one who's offering us this forgiveness. It's the, the bright and morning star who's doing that. The son of man who comes from all the glory and the heights of heaven. He comes and he sacrifices his life for you and me. And as we grasp that by faith, then something happens in our life deep, deep down. It's a, it's a term now that is used often in a disparaging way. Born again. You hear that, oh, he's a, she's a, they're a born again. As if it was some kind of disease that you had. But actually, you cannot, you cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you're born again. You must be born again, Jesus said. He didn't say, well, if you feel like it, it's optional. You could come along for 15 years. You could study the Bible. You know, you could go to a small group. All this. No. No, you must be born again. You must perceive who Jesus really is, the Son of God. You must perceive that he is the truth, the light of the world. And as that dawns on you, and as you receive that by faith, which in itself is a gift from God, something happens deep in your heart. And this is what's happened to this woman as she comes and approaches Jesus. I was so, again, encouraged by what Sally said this morning. She came out. And encouraged us to go further. Encouraged us to go deeper in our love and devotion to the Lord. It was inspiring to hear that. That woman comes. And we've seen the transformation here at King's as well. We're very blessed. We've seen people here. I could ask you to raise your hand. Do you feel in some way you've been transformed? Just raise your hand. I'm not saying you're perfect. Hello. None of us are. But you may feel that some kind of transformation has gone on. Things that you, the way you used to act, the way you, you the, the language, even that, the language that used to pour out of your mouth, which was unhelpful, does not pour out anymore. But more positive things come. Is that true for anybody here? Or maybe it's, um, you know, relationships where you've got angry Maybe rightfully so. And then bitterness has set in and unforgiveness has set in and it's been gnawing away at you. And Jesus has come and he's begun that work of transformation and there's been a a transforming going on in your life. I've seen it here. I could point to people this morning, but I won't, where I've seen that going on. I've seen people who are phobias. They can't even go out of their own house. How ridiculous is that? Because of fear. They can't, they can't face people coming into their house. They have to hide. How crazy is that? But it's real. It's real for that person. And Jesus comes. And that person gets born again. And something happens deep within. And their life begins to transform. And they get released from that. Hallelujah. I've seen it. Or people who are, you know, they're suffering, laboring under a dark cloud of depression. And that's a very real thing to have to suffer. And maybe we battle with it from time to time as well. But Jesus comes as the light of the world. And he leans towards us. And he speaks encouraging words. And he sheds his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And a transforming work begins in our hearts. And that depression begins to lift and we become transformed by the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you to reaffirm that God is at work in your life. Yes, we have setbacks. Yes, we have failings. Yes, we look at ourselves and think, I would like to be better than I am. Who doesn't think that? I wish I didn't do this. I'd like to do that instead. You know, but it's from one degree of glory to another that God is moving. Doesn't always happen on the day that you're born again. Something profound happens on that day or on that occasion. But that transforming work that Jesus is doing is something that is ongoing. And this is part of it this morning. Our worship, as we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord in times of worship, something happens in our hearts. Our hearts become more aligned to what Jesus wants. As we sit and listen to his word, we get hopefully encouraged and stirred to align our thinking and our ways with what Jesus wants. And so God's transforming work continues. I want to say this again, and I know it's been said a hundred times. God loves you. He loves you. He's for you. I'm not against you, the Lord says. Do you think I didn't know what I was taking on when when you first encountered me? Of course I knew. Was I put off by everything that I know about you? No. I did not come for those who don't need a physician. I came for those who were sick. So I knew exactly what I was. I knew that what you had was terminal. It wasn't just a cough and a cold. It was just a 50. It was terminal. And I came to intervene in order that you would have new life. And my purpose and my plan for you is this. I want to transform you moment by moment and day by day. And one day I'll present you faultless before my throne with exceeding joy. Amen. I wonder what transforming work Jesus is doing in your life. And I wonder if you have a story to tell. The tragedy is people don't know yet many who Jesus is. But maybe you've got a story of transformation that you can tell someone. Maybe as we're doing meals with Jesus, you could do it over a meal. Maybe you could have a barbecue. Maybe you could have a coffee with someone. Maybe you could go to a cafe with somebody and just come out with it. So I just wanted to tell you what's been going on in my life for the last 10 years or last week. Or whatever it was. I just want to tell you that Jesus is very important to me. Just get out of the boat and do it. And tell someone. Even if it's when you're shopping. And someone's serving you. Are you having a nice day? Yeah, I'm having a great day. Because I really feel that Jesus is with me today. And um, I know he is all the time. But I've really felt it. And God's at work in my life. And DDD. Thank you very much. Off you go. You never know what impact that might have on somebody. The woman was deeply grateful to the Lord for what he'd done in her life. Let's be grateful to the Lord for what he has done in ours. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you.